morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, February 8th, we are studying John chapter 7, verses 14 to 31. Now in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, Jesus goes up into the temple and begins teaching, causing both amazement and opposition among those who hear him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's good to be back. As we get started today, Pastor Kilgo, let's talk context. What should we know about John chapter 7, any of the gospel according to St. John that will help us with this section? Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing is we're we're in the middle of this kind of narrative dealing with the Feast of Booths and Jesus uh, engaging with the the Pharisees and, and dealing with this teaching, um, and particularly like uh, what what authority does does Jesus carry? Why why is it that Jesus has the authority to to preach? Why is it he has the authority to teach? Why is he have this authority to heal? And especially as as we'll get brought up to to heal on the Sabbath. And so there's a lot of stuff surrounding kind of in the in the in the background of this. Uh the the question is dealing with like who Jesus is and where his authority is derived from. And this ultimately ends up being a really big theme in the gospel of John of the, uh, the authority of Jesus becoming from the father himself. And so that that's going to be one of the, the big things that just kind of sits in the background of this. One of the interesting things about this section of John in particular and surrounding the authority of Jesus as well is the fact that Jesus has been somewhat secretive in this chapter the previous text, he had this conversation with his brothers where they were saying, hey, you need to go up to the feast. You need to make this big splash. Jesus says, no, it's not my time yet. And we talked about the connection between his time coming and his death and his resurrection. Now he has gone up to the feast. He's done so privately and secretly. We're going to see that today's text is in the middle of the feast. He does go into the temple, which is a public place. But even then, all of this is to say, if Jesus is the kind of person who has the authority that's going to challenge the authority of the the religious leaders, he's just exercising it in an unusual way, I guess is the the realization that I, I'm seeing and I think is I find interesting is because this challenge that they perceive from him, it's not the way that at least maybe I would draw it up and most earthly wisdom would draw it up. He's doing this in a, an unusual way and still they perceive the threat. I don't know. I just, I'm not sure what to make of that. It just seems a, an, it's a different sort of conflict, I guess, that I'm, I'm noticing here. Yeah. And I think this is one of the, but I think this always sits with us when we're reading the gospels and we're, we're looking at what Jesus is doing and how he's engaging with different people, uh, whether it's, 
doing healings, teaching, uh, preaching, engaging with scribes and Pharisees, that uh, it, it can be really easy to lose sight of the the ultimate reason why Jesus is actually here in the first place. Why is he walking around with flesh and blood, right? And that's so that he would uh, suffer under the wrath of God uh, for our sake at the cross, right? And John John's pretty good about kind of always pushing you to that. But um, all these other things at the end of the day end up being uh, subjected to that. So, so even as teaching, which I think if you're, if you're ranking this stuff, right, Jesus's preaching and teaching is paramount. The, the, the miracle, the various miracles and the healings and stuff, those are, I think a bit more incidental. Um, they're like, he, he, Jesus isn't out searching for people to go and heal. They just get brought up to him uh, and he, and he does it. He's not searching out dead people to raise just when he comes across dead people, uh, death tends to be undone when it comes into contact with Jesus. Yeah. So, um, but, but ultimately at the end of the day, Jesus is here to die and to be raised. So, um, uh, I, I think that that's an important aspect in the background. Like anytime Jesus is doing stuff and it's not the way we would expect, like, why isn't Jesus just going up and marching up toe to toe with the, with the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and whatnot and just challenging them straight up because he has the authority to do it. He could do that. Um, but that's not ultimately why he's here. His um his ultimate authority to forgive sin, which is the chief thing, the chief authority that he is going to carry with him, uh, is going to be manifest in his death and resurrection. Um, and that's what all the teaching is going to be uh, driving at as well. So I think that that's a helpful, uh, not, not necessarily satisfying, but I, I think that it's helpful uh, in, in answering like, why is, why is Jesus not doing things this way? Hmm. Right. And, and we certainly see him doing things in an unusual manner again in this text today. I will say that this section of John, John chapter seven, in my mind is one that for some reason, I tend to skip over, and I don't know this section of John well. Maybe it's because chapter six is full of you know such familiar texts with the bread of life, the feeding of the 5,000 before that. And then when you move into John chapter eight, and Jesus says he's the light of the world, and you get the text that we hear on Reformation most most years. John chapter seven, in my own mind, for, for some reason, often gets skipped over. And so I I don't think I'm as familiar with these words of Jesus as I am with others. I don't know if that happens to you with, with certain sections of scripture, Pastor Gogo, but, but as I read John chapter seven, it, I, I'm, it's refreshing because I, I don't always pay attention as well to this section, I think. Yeah. And I mean, a big part of that is that John seven just doesn't show up in the lectionary, right? right. So, I mean, it, it's not something that we're being forced to deal with on a regular basis. Um, and you know, good, bad, or indifferent. It, that just kind of is is the way it is. There, there's no way to actually cover the entirety of the scriptures in a in a lectionary format um, unless you're meeting every single day. So, um, you know, some things just get skipped, uh, 
and and this is this is one of those but yeah i'm i'm kind of there chapter seven of john is not nearly as familiar to me as a number of the other sections of john that you that you hear fairly regularly yeah yeah so this is a good opportunity for us to spend some time in a chapter of scripture that sometimes you don't hear as often it doesn't show up in the lectionary so we have an opportunity to appreciate, to be fed by this word of Christ today. We are in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That's our text for today. That's John chapter 7, verses 14 to 31. Pastor Kilgo, our text starts in the middle of the feast. This is the Feast of Booths, as we heard in the previous text. Again, Jesus didn't go up at the beginning of the feast, or at least he didn't go publicly at the beginning of the feast. He's been there for a few days. We're in the middle of the feast, and now he starts teaching in the temple. And his teaching, as we hear it here, comes in response first to this objection, this marveling of the Jews How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Talk about the setting for Jesus' teaching and this initial question of amazement from the Jews that he's going to respond to. Yeah, so like like you said, he he goes up in the middle of this, um, and he goes up into the temple. It's it's not clear like is he going into the in kind of the the main parts of it. Is he going into one of these like colonnades out on the side probably in one of the colonnades on the side because this is where like the rabbis would gather and and instruct kind of their own their own little cohorts and and whatnot um and as he's doing this there's there's this marvelment and there's an interesting thing like to to just look at especially in the gospels when when there's marveling going on 
um, because it's it's this this idea of like um, like fear and awe and reverence kind of all smushed together, um, and like when when other people are doing this uh, in regards to Jesus or what Jesus is doing, and when Jesus himself uh, does this, uh, we we just uh, had this on uh, this past Sunday um, in the in the one year lectionary the healing the centurion's servant and, and Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. He, he marvels at the, the faith of the woman, uh, with the, uh, discharge of blood. And, um, and so it, it's, it's interesting to pay attention to when this is happening, because I think it's kind of a marker of something, um, something a bit out of the ordinary, um, for, for, uh, for another reference, you've got like the shepherds marveling, um, at, at what's happening and, and, uh, uh, at Jesus's birth. So, so it's a, it's kind of a big, important word. And, and here they're, they're marveling at Jesus's teaching. Um, and there, it, it seems like there's some confusion because he's, he's teaching and they, and they say he, he doesn't have, uh, this man has no learning or how's it this man has learning when he's when he's never studied um and what particularly that that's referencing uh is not entirely clear um i know when i was reading luther on this he seemed to indicate that um part of this at least is going to be the fact that jesus is not a levite so the the vocation of the levites if we remember was um, you know, they, they didn't own their own property and whatnot so that, so that they would be freed from the, the duties of taking care of, of, uh, uh, of land and home and all this sort of stuff, all that was provided to them, uh, so that they could attend chiefly to the sacrifices, the prayers and the, uh, the, the public readings, uh, basically, um, functioning as, as, uh, as priests and pastors, um, and so they're they're freed from that. And you get a similar sort of thing in the, in the New Testament that the um the one who who preaches is um is to be taken care of by the congregation that he's preaching to. Um, and so there there's this kind of idea that you know who how is it that this guy knows what he knows that he has this wisdom that he's uh, seems like he's very clearly uh, teaching with when he's not a, a Levite and he's not a, a, a Pharisee or a scribe or anything like this. Um, so that's one aspect of this. The other aspect, and it, and it may be some combination of both, is that uh, he's not um, he's, he's not a Pharisee. He's not hanging out with, with them. He's not hanging out with the, with the, the scribes or the, the lawyers or anything like that. So there's, there's possibly also like a, you know, this guy isn't one of us deal going on here um and and that's certainly a an attitude of the um the 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 unbelieving jews certainly have that attitude throughout the gospels about jesus hmm. what this the thought of them marvel marveling at him and just kind of seeing the mixed reaction that comes later in the text i think it, it's easy on the one hand to see this question, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied as a negative reaction against Jesus, just another attempt to 
tear him down and to undermine him. And I think you see that you know, later in the text when there's opposition that's ready to, to bring Jesus harm. At the same time, some of the other positive aspects of marveling in the Gospels, do you think maybe there are some in this crowd who are thinking, wow, I can't, be- well, that's how I say this. I can't believe this guy is so smart because he's never studied in a more more positive sense, or at least maybe not entirely negative sense. Maybe there's a, a bit of a, a mixture going on with this one question. Yeah, I, I think there is. And I and I think that the the marveling kind of indicates what, like you said, what, what happens in kind of the mixed reaction that people are just kind of confused. Like they, they don't, they don't understand um, e- either from a positive standpoint or a negative standpoint. They, they just don't understand how it is that Jesus is, is preaching with this sort of wisdom and authority and whatnot. And this, this is a, a phrase that comes up. I, I think it's in Matthew that Jesus, they, they marvel at his teaching because he preaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes, right? So there's a, um, not only in the, in the content and, and, and the wisdom with which they, they preach, but there's a sort of like tangible authority with which Jesus is apparently, uh, teaching like for lack of a better term, like you can, you can feel it and, um, in how he's how he's speaking, um, I think it it might be similar to, um, to maybe think of it this way: when when Jesus later on in John's Gospel, when they when they come up to him to to arrest him, they they ask, uh, "Whom do you seek?" And he um, he asks, "Whom do you seek?" They say, "Jesus Nazareth," and he says, uh, "It is I." And it gets translated that way, but it's it's an "I am" statement. He says, "I am." That that's his response, and they all fall over. Right. Well, right. well, this is indicative of those, those words actually having this this kind of power, this authority with the words themselves, like that they're actually doing something. And um, I, I think that's kind of what's at play here. And so they're marveling at this, like it just doesn't make sense. Um, and so I think that what, what you see ultimately is you see a group of people who are very confused. <laughs> um because they, they're not recognizing where Jesus is proceeding from, which is what he actually responds yeah. to, right? It's, yeah. I think it's always important when, when people are responding to Jesus, uh, how Jesus responds to them is really the important thing because Jesus is always driving at the root. And so he's, he, Jesus seems to indicate by his response that the reason why they're marveling and the reason why they don't understand and are confused is because they don't understand the, the origin of Jesus himself. Mm. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting because sometimes when Jesus responds to a question or a statement, he will go into a direction that you didn't see coming. The question is this, and Jesus says something like, wait a second, I don't know how that's actually responding to the question. In this case, I do think you you see it, though, because with this question, how is it that he has learning he's never studied? They don't recognize where he's getting all of his material from. And Jesus is going to answer that. Where does his doctrine, where does his teaching come from? What is the source? I think Jesus' response follows pretty easily from their confusion. So in verse 16, Jesus' answer begins like this. My teaching is not mine 
but his who sent me. And we're going to see this theme come up throughout Jesus' words. We've seen it already in John's gospel. Talk about the importance of Jesus identifying himself as the one who has been sent from the Father and the one who's teaching what the Father has given him. Yeah, this is one of the really wonderful things about John's gospel is is John, more than any of the other evangelists, really sets the the doctrine of the Trinity in front of you in the in this profound way that you have uh, the Father sending Jesus, you have Jesus proceeding from the Father, you have the Holy Spirit in procession from both the Father and the Son. You have their particular works, like so. Later on in uh, John. 15 and 16, you'll get the Jesus talking about the particular work of the Holy Spirit and how all this kind of merges together. And and then you get this uh showing up like in the uh in the prayer, uh in the 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 high priestly prayer at the toward the end of John's gospel where where Jesus is talking with the Father. And one of the great mysteries that kind of gets revealed with all of this, and that is that while there is a a unity of the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are all God, and they are all persons of the one Godhead. And yet there's this there's this conversation and this uniqueness that is still occurring within that. And and this is what what gets referred to as the the divine council, um, what you get at the beginning of Genesis, where uh God says, let us make man in our image. And this is you getting to overhear God talking amongst himself, amongst the the three persons of the Trinity, which I mean, when you're, when you're three persons in one God, then you actually can talk to yourself and, and not be crazy in the process. And, and so this is one of the things that's going on with, uh, with this, that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me it's kind of a weird statement, right? Uh, you, Jesus is sent by the Father, and he's sent um, to to preach that this word from the Father, and to do these things that the Father has given him to do according to his vocation of the Christ, the Messiah. Um, but at the same time, they they are also his teachings, right? Um, so, so there's this this mystery that just kind of gets set in front of us, and um, what's kind of nice is there's there's really no attempt to ever explain this. Um, I don't think it really can be explained. I think it can just be put in front of us to confess and believe, and and ponder and marvel at at it um, that that Jesus. Jesus has these words to give to us and they are coming from the father himself. And in that, in that sense, they're not his, right? But one of the things that Jesus is getting at with this too, is that he's not, he's not making this up, right? And he's not relying just only on himself, right? Jesus doesn't exist in a vacuum, basically. Um, he, he's not acting apart from the will of especially the father, but the rest of the Holy Trinity. So he, he's not off doing his own thing. Once he becomes incarnate, he, he is still bound up to this, this internal will, um, of the father, the son and the Holy spirit. And so he's, he, he's not claiming some sort of authority in a worldly sense. He's claiming the, what we might say is the authority, 
right? The the authority that um the the reason why the Levites can preach is because the Lord's given them that authority. The the reason why, like for example, that the government can rule is because the Lord's given them that authority. Um, and what Jesus is here claiming is that he has the authority to do these things from its ultimate source. So he has been sent from the Father. His teaching is the Father's, the one who sent him. Got just about two minutes here before the break, Pastor Kilgo. Start telling us about verse 17. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What does Jesus mean? Yeah, so he's he's pointing us to the fact that that God's will and God's teaching are bound up to each other, and and maybe the easiest place to see that is in the commandments, right? So so the commandments are God's will literally written down. So like, what does God want me to do? Well, here's the Ten Commandments. That's going to actually instruct you in in what to do. And so if you know what God's will is, and you listen to the teaching of Jesus, you will then see, oh, those are the same thing. So Jesus isn't making something up here. He is he is continuing to speak according to the will of the Father. Hmm. All right. Jesus continues to speak according to the will of the Father. He's done that throughout the gospel. He continues to do that here in our text and throughout John's gospel. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking John chapter 7 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 8th. We're studying John chapter 7, verses 14 to 31 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we left off looking at verse 17. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my authority. Then Jesus continues, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So it seems there that Jesus is is doing some contrasting. He's not the one who speaks on his own authority, because then he would be seeking his own glory. Rather, Jesus speaks on the authority of the one who sent him, the Father, and so Jesus is seeking the glory of the Father. Talk about verse 18. Yeah, so I mean, this is, this is one of the things that 
uh, is a big critique of the Pharisees, right? Is that they're they're out there not trying to instruct the people for the good of the people and to the glory of God. They're trying to kind of garner up glory for themselves, right? They they like sitting in the high places. They like being on the street corners and and receiving this praise and whatnot. And Jesus rebukes them for that. And that this kind of gets into the 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 root of all of that. That if you are um if you're deriving what you're saying from your own authority, like I'm I'm awesome and so I can say these things. And who are you to, you know, disagree with me? Look who I am. Uh that you're you're looking at your own glory. You're you're not looking um for the glory of the Lord. You're not looking for anybody else's glory. It's it's all about you. What Jesus is saying here is um, that's not what I'm doing. I'm I'm pointing to the authority of the Father. I'm pointing to His words, His will, and I am glorifying Him. This is another big theme in John: is the the glorification of the Father and the Son, and they happen in unexpected ways, uh, especially at the end, where the glorification of Jesus is His death. Um, that that's a a turn you don't expect. Um, but the Jesus point here is I'm, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm seeking the glory of the father. And in that you have truth. Um, and this is going to be a, an echoing thing that's going to get all the way to John 14, where, where he says that I am the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah. So Jesus, yeah, no, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. We'll just, yeah. So Jesus is not seeking his own authority. He's seeking or his own glory. He's seeking the glory of the one who sent him. That's going to take him to the cross and into the, out of the open and empty tomb in verse 19. Then Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law yet? None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, this is something we've heard Jesus bring up previously, especially back in chapter five. Although the authority of Moses and what Moses was talking about was certainly present in chapter six as well throughout the bread of life discourse, he's been making this a a big deal recently, Jesus has, that Moses is actually writing about Jesus. Moses believed in Jesus. And, And so here Jesus brings it up again that Moses gave them the law, but they're not keeping it. He asks, why do you seek to kill him? I I'm curious what, what you think about this verse, Pastor Kogo, because I, I think when he, Jesus tells them, none of you keeps the law, I think maybe there's two things going on there. One is that they're wanting to kill him, and that is very clearly a breaking of the law, you shall not murder. On, on the other hand, I, I wonder if it's a little bit bigger than that, again, drawing on those other passages, that the reason they're not keeping the law isn't just because they want to murder Jesus, but it's also because they don't believe in Jesus. And if they really believed the law, they would believe in Jesus. It seems to me that maybe both of those things are going on here. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely. So so the, the very obvious one, like you said, is you shall not murder and they're going to seek to kill him. What's kind of interesting about this is, if, if I remember correctly, there's not been a, at least recorded from John, um, a, attempt to kill Jesus yet, but G- Jesus knows what's in their hearts. So I, I don't think that's a, a huge stretch there. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, um, the, the, the keeping of the law ultimately is bound up into the first commandment, right? You, you have one commandment, don't have any other gods. And then everything else that flows from that is 
what it looks like to live a life with only one God. You you pray, you use his name rightly, you you hear his word and, and worship rightly, you honor authority, you don't you you honor life, protect it. Right. So all of this is is a product of having one God, the and the one true God. And so I think you're exactly right that the ultimately the the not keeping of the law is unbelief. Um, and that and that really is is the 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 root from which all of these other things are going to flow, right? Their 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 hatred of Jesus flows from their unbelief at at the end of the day, and their their refusal to listen to his words flows from their unbelief. Mm-hmm. And and that's and that and that's true not just for them. I mean that's that's all of us. Like ev- every issue ultimately that we encounter is at the end of the day on account of our own uh sin and unbelief that that just it that sits there with our with our old man now as as the crowd hears this they they react pretty pretty strongly they say you've got a demon jesus who's trying to kill you which i think maybe shows the the mixed nature of this crowd you know we we have heard previously in john that that they want to kill him. Although, as you said, there hasn't been an out and out attempt. Jesus knows that they want to kill him for what he did on the Sabbath. Perhaps here in this crowd, that would be news to some of them. They don't realize it. They're listening to Jesus maybe for the first time. Uh, again, the mixed nature of the crowd, I think, is there. But you have a demon. This is their their reaction. You're you're crazy, Jesus. How could you possibly think that someone wants to kill you? And then I think in, in Jesus' answer, he brings it back to the reason, and he he goes back to what he did on the Sabbath. But talk about their reaction, saying he's got a demon, and then start to take us into Jesus' answer. Yeah, I think you have a demon is kind of this um, like uh, cl- colloquial way of saying you're you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, and like you said, because because it, there hasn't been a a straight up attempt. But Jesus knows, and so he's he's kind of bringing that to the to the forefront. Um, and then he he goes back to what what's kind of started all of this. And this is this. Um, he said, "I did one work," and it, that seems to be a uh, a reference to the the healing on the Sabbath of the the guy at the pool of Siloam. And um, uh, there, there's kind of outrage about this because it was done on the Sabbath. And and there's a few of these, right? There, there's a few like there's the healing of the man with the withered hand too. Um, uh, on the, on the Sabbath. I think that's on the Sabbath. There's a couple of these, um, or, um, uh, when they're, uh, when they're encountering Jesus and his disciples and they're doing something on the Sabbath, they don't particularly approve of. And, um, at the, at the core of this is just a, um, by, by the Pharisees. And, um, I I would say because the Pharisees have falsely taught the people, the people as well, not understanding what the nature of the Sabbath is and, and what Jesus will bring up that um, the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath, right? That there's a um, a function to this that you're missing, right? And that the, the function of this is, is not more regulations for you to keep. The function of this is for you to rest uh, in the work of God for you. Right. And, and particularly at this time to, to hear the scriptures concerning what God has and continues to do for you. And in that to, to receive and be strengthened in faith in the, 
in the the work of the first commandment, right? Mm-hmm. And so he he brings this up with with Moses, right? That you know Moses is giving this command, circumcise, and you do that on the Sabbath, and you're fine with that because it, uh, this is one of the the funny things about like all the Sabbath regulations, right? The things they're fine with, they're not fine with because of some uh, great underlying principle. They're fine with it because they've they've said this is okay, right? It, it's this very circular sort of argument of what's okay on the Sabbath. It's like, well, this is okay because we said it's okay. It's like, well, that's not how any of this is actually supposed to work, though. So, um, Jesus rightly points this out. He's like, I mean, if you can circumcise someone on the Sabbath, why is it that I can make somebody's whole body well, and you're you're getting upset about that, right? You're 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 doing something to one part of the body. I'm doing something to the entirety of the body, which is better. And um, and obviously there there's no answer to this because it's it's driving at the root of the issue, and that is that they're they're deriving these these commands. Um, and it kind of goes back to the to earlier stuff with the the father and authority. They're deriving this stuff from their own authority, not from the authority of the father, which is bound up to his word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way Jesus speaks about the Sabbath here, I think, is is important, and I think it fits very well with other things he says about the Sabbath in the Synoptic Gospels. He brings up the matter of circumcision, and he says, look, Moses gave you circumcision. You do that on the Sabbath. So is that work? Are you breaking the Sabbath by keeping this command of Moses or not? And and the thought of how he connects that to the making of the man's body whole, I think, is important. He reveals the true purpose of the Sabbath is to have rest and to have restoration, to make this, this recreation. That's what Jesus did for this man back in chapter 5. Circumcision, he connects that, this matter of, of receiving you know, the gift of being made a part of God's people there. And so I think he, he connects those things quite well. And he, I think he sums it up then into verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That seems to be the what he's applying as he's talking about the Sabbath and circumcision and connecting that to what he's done. Help us to see what Jesus is saying in all of that. Yeah, so so this this last line, um, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Uh, th- this is first and foremost, it is a a commentary or the, or the the culmination of the argument that Jesus is making. Um, he's saying, you know, don't don't judge me in my teaching by mere appearances, like who I am. Yes, I'm I'm of the I'm not of the tribe of Levi. I'm not hanging out with the Pharisees, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so don't, don't judge my teaching by that judge it rightly or, or righteously. Uh, so, so the word, uh, where it says right judgment, um, that this is the word for, um, for righteousness, um, or, or just like justification. It, it's that, that word group that's sitting there. Um, and so there's a, a, a correctness or or a straightness, um, at a kind of a uh, a very deep level uh, that that's um, with which the judgment is being it is to be applied. Uh, so so what Jesus is saying is you're you're looking at me and the reason why you're wanting to kill me, why you don't want to listen to me, all this sort of stuff, is because you're you're looking at me in in the wrong way. This is what Luther. Uh, 
talks quite a bit about throughout his throughout his writings is is a thing called the eye of faith, which I think we've probably talked about before because it's one of my personal hobby horses. Um, but uh, what I mean, he he's exactly right, and is a great way of thinking about this. So so the the people are not looking at Jesus with the eye of faith; they're looking at him with what Luther would call the mortal eye. Uh, so they're they're only judging by kind of these external things. Um, they're they're judging with the eye, uh, uh, not with faith. And so Jesus's exhortation here is is you know to not look at him with the eye, but to look at him with faith. Now that's that that's the first and foremost thing. But I I do think that this is one this is an important text in this whole conversation of like judgment in general. Because you always get this out of like uh, Matthew seven and the and the Luke in parallel um, uh, to you know judge not lest you be judged um, and that that's kind of all that ever gets said and there's there's a bigger context in both of those texts that make it very clear that Jesus isn't saying there there's there's never an instance in which you're not supposed to pass judgment there there's a particular way of going about doing that and and the the critique there is against uh, hypocritical judgment. Uh, here, the critique is uh, judgment based on your own internal standards, which is, I think, really, really important. Uh, when we when we pass judgment, and we and we should, uh, that the the New Testament especially makes this very clear that we are to pass judgment. We are to make judgments about the things that are going on around us, um, how we're acting and what we're saying and all this. The standard that we are to apply is not something that we're making up ourselves and it's not something that we're getting from the world. The standard that we're supposed to apply is, is that of righteous judgment. Uh, that's the scriptures. So, so we're always to apply the standard of the scriptures uh, to everything around us and to ourselves, right? So that we're all held to a standard that is the same, but also external to us. And, and has the authority of the Lord himself, right? So again, this, this goes back to this, this whole deal of like, what's the authority? What's the origin of all of this? It is the Lord and his word um, that, that's sitting in the, uh, at the, the core of it. And, and that's the, the, the standard then by which we need to be actually judging. So like you, you listen to your pastor preach, right? And your your standard for judgment, because you should judge the preaching of your pastors, um, but your standard of judgment shouldn't be whether you liked it or whether it was said with eloquence or any of these sort of things, or even like that. There's all these conversations that always float around, like, um, you know, did did the pastor read the sermon or did he preach it from memory or did he go off an outline or whatever? And all those are fine. And there's, there's positives and negatives to all of that as far as, you know, styles of preaching. What you are to judge as far as your pastor's preaching is it, its actual content. Um, is it orthodox? Is it, is it saying the same thing to you that the Lord himself says to you in his word? Because that's the standard. Um, and, and that gets applied then like everywhere in our lives. So I, I think that this is a, a vitally important text, especially as a corrective to the the misunderstanding of this in 
in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, a very important verse for our times, for sure. And again, what a what a wonderful passage to consider, one that we don't often hear on Sunday morning, so a good opportunity again for us to read and apply the Word of God here in John chapter 7. After Jesus says that in verse 24, there's more response, and now we've got people of Jerusalem asking, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, which is just a, a fascinating observation. They, they realize that, okay, maybe there are some people that do want to kill Jesus, but they're not doing anything about it right now. So maybe they're hiding something. Maybe they really know that he's the Christ, but then they don't they don't really buy that because they've got this observation. Well, we know where this guy comes from, and we know that the Christ, we're not going to know where he comes from. Again, I certainly think you see the confusion here. What, what do you see going on in their kind of back and forth observations there in verses 25 through 27? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the... Um part of the outcome of the the marvelment and what listening to what Jesus just said. And uh, there's just kind of confusion piled on top of confusion. Um, you know, they, they start to question like, you know, are, are these guys like trying to go after Jesus because um, they, they know who he actually is. And I, and I think that's a, a pretty astute question. Uh, I think that does show up periodically with the, with the enemies of Jesus. they, they know who he is and, and they don't like it. And so they're, they're going to try and uh, destroy him. Um, which means that they don't, they don't fully compre- comprehend who he is, right? That that's all that means. Um, they understand who he is enough, uh, uh, to be afraid of him, uh, and, and to want to get rid of him, but not enough to understand that, um, you're not going to be successful if you try and get rid of this guy, right? Because it is God himself. Um, but, uh, but I mean, w- with this, you know, um, uh, the, I mean, you, you just get these weird statements in here. You, you get that one. Um, and you get this, um, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from, which is, which is just not true. Right. Right. Um, like, I, I think this is where you can see like just how confused the, the crowd of people has become that like, they don't even, uh, they don't even remember that there are very specific prophecies on, on where Jesus is going to come from now. Like part of this confusion is going to be like, yeah, Jesus comes from Bethlehem ultimately, but he also comes from Galilee. Um, and, and this is all connected to, you know, the, the, the birth narratives and whatnot, and all this movement that happens. And, um, so you, you can definitely see, um, where there can be some confusion there. Uh, but, but this, this statement that no one's going to know where he comes from, like that, that flies in the face, for example, of when the Magi come, the Magi come, uh, knowing like they know where to find him. Right. Uh, but then also like when, when Herod, uh, loses his mind and and decides to try and go and, and destroy uh, the child. He he asks the um, his, his own like scribes and stuff. You know where where would I find such a a child? And it's like well, uh, in Bethlehem. And they're like oh okay, well let's send all the soldiers over there, right? So I mean 
Herod, Herod can figure this out. The Magi can figure it out. Um, so it's pretty plain. And they just apparently have, have forgotten it or, or just aren't thinking. Um, and this, this is the sort of, this, all of this kind of reminds me of what happens with the transfiguration and Peter. Um, hmm. Because Peter knows better than to try and build, you know, three, three places of worship, three, three tabernacles uh, uh, for, for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. You don't build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah. Like, uh, G, uh, Peter is a good enough Jew to, to know better, but he's kind of lost his mind, uh, in, in, uh, in, in connection with everything that's going on around him with the transfiguration, which is understandable, right? When, when the, when the right. glory of the Lord is being manifest in front of you in that sort of way, like you, you can, you can forgive a guy for, for kind of losing his mind a bit. Um, <laughs> And, and maybe even here where like people are listening to this and I, I think we should maybe have a little bit of sympathy for the crowd, um, like yeah. throughout the gospels, uh, one, because we would not be any better. That's right. Um, but also I, I don't think we, we think about this enough. Like for how many generations have these people been falsely taught by the, mm. the scribes and the Pharisees and you've got the Sadducees running around saying all sorts of nonsense in addition to that. And, um, and, and this is like one of these things that Luther brings up that when, when you confront false teaching, he says, you kick the dog and you comfort the child and you, you, you run the false teacher out, you get rid of them, but then you, you don't treat the falsely taught in the same way that you treat a false teacher, the falsely taught have to be cared for. Right. And I think you actually see that with Jesus. So, so Jesus will, he will go after the Pharisees uh, periodically and, and the various false teachers. But the crowds, he seems to be much more patient with, right? He, he doesn't, uh, he, he rebukes them, but not nearly with the same sort of force that he will the, the other groups. And I think that's, that's instructive for us and that, that Jesus understands himself, right? Uh, these are uh, in, in you know, some of the other sections, he, these are, sheep who are without a shepherd, right? They're, they're shepherds there, but they're false shepherds. Yeah. yeah. And so he, he is, he has come as the good shepherd, which we will hear him speak very explicitly later in John's gospel. For about four minutes here, Pastor Kilgo, to, to pick up the rest of the text, Jesus responds to this still there in the temple by once again, you know, inviting them to think about, do you really know where I come from? And then reminding them that in fact, he does come from the father, and then again, there's a response, and we see more confusion by the end of the text. Help us to, to wrap things up with these last few verses of the text this morning. Yeah, so you get this, this emphasis again, almost like this bracketing in this text that uh, Jesus' procession is from the Father. Um, that, that's his, his origin. That's the origin of his teaching and his own authority. Um, and, and in the uh, wake of all this, uh, they still seek to come and arrest him. They, uh, there's still at least a group of people here who are not listening, who won't believe. And so they come up to arrest him. But as is the case over and over in the, in the gospels and especially in John, um, his hour had not yet come, right? So, uh, th this is a phrase that's going to come to a head, um, on Holy week where Jesus says, uh, um, uh, particularly to the, to the father that glor glorify, um, yourself that for the hour has come. 
right? So, so now the, the hour of glorification, Jesus's own hour, um, has, has come and that that's his death, right? So with, with all of these things throughout, throughout the gospels, there, this, this idea of Jesus's hour is, is very important because he's going to be doing these things and there's going to be these attempts to kind of destroy him or, or thwart what he's doing or whatever it might be. But that never succeeds uh, because at the end of the day, Jesus is still very much in control of all of this. And, and that, that'll come to a, uh, that, that'll be very apparent in the Good Shepherd discourse where he says that um, I lay it down of my own accord and I take it back up again and I have that authority. Uh, you get that, that language coming in again there. Um, but, but Jesus is in control of this whole thing. Um, he, he's not at the whims of the crowd. He has a particular hour at which he will be going to his glorification on the cross. Um, and he's going to ensure that that happens because that's why he's here. Like we talked about at the very beginning. Um, the reason why Jesus is here, um, is not to sit and debate the Pharisees and sit and, uh, you know, the debate with the crowds and try and get them to understand, uh, what, what he's doing. His purpose here is to be glorified in his death because that glorification is bound up in his, uh, taking on the father's wrath and giving to us his righteousness, uh, in the process that he would be raised from the dead for our justification. Uh, that that's, that's where his glorification is, is going to come. That's when his hour is going to be. And that, and that's the entirety of his purpose, uh, in his, in his incarnation. And so, you know, every time we get these, these phrases, my hour, not his hour, not yet come, my hour is not yet all this. We should, we should hear the evangelists pointing us always to, uh, Christ's death and resurrection. Pastor Sean Kilgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas, helping us today to study John chapter 7, verses 14 to 31. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.